Hi, this is Toco Brand Manager Ian Harvey. I'm here with Ben Lustgarten. Ben has represented the United States 34 times in both World Cup and World Championship events. He is the U.S. National Champion 2017 in the 30K Classic Mass Start. He's got 10 podiums and four wins on the Super Tour, and he retired from full-time training and racing in the spring of 2020, although I have to say he's still looking pretty fit. Ben, thanks for being with me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ian. Cool. Well, super. Um, let's dive into it. I want to ask you where you grew up and how you started ski racing. Yeah, of course. Uh, it's always fun to learn about how skiers start. Um, so I started ski racing and grew up in um, Burlington, Vermont. Started skiing at a really young age, around three years old or so, just basically putts around our backyard with my twin brother, Eric, um, on some like homemade wooden skis that my dad built for us. Um, and then we kind of got into alpine skiing, actually. Um, we, uh, my dad uh, helped co coach alpine skiing when he was uh, younger. And then my mom raced alpine skiing when she was in high school. So we went to Bolton Valley, which is a small ski hill uh, just outside Burlington. And uh, basically did that every weekend as kids. Uh, I actually did a year of snowboarding when I was 12, uh, but then back to alpine skiing after that. And um, we did some cross-country skiing with the family, but it was more like backcountry, just like, you know, going in the woods, single track, classic skiing. And then my dad really liked it. Um, Nordic skiing always kind of was more boring <laughs> and harder than Alpine. But I also had like a subtle appreciation for, you know, the solitude of nature and also being drawn to putting in work to like feel a little bit fitter, but it never was serious. Um, first time I raced was in high school, actually. Um, we joined, my brother and I joined the uh, Burlington High School Nordic Ski Team, actually from the advice of our best friend, Andrew, at the time. So I uh, ran cross country running um, because my buddy Andrew convinced me to. And then he had a little background in biathlon and he asked if we wanted to join the uh, Nordic ski team. And we were on the fence, but we decided to do it. Um, so my brother and I only classic skied because that's what I thought cross country skiing was. I didn't know much about skating, never skated before. Um, so I learned how to skate ski on the high school team. Um, and yeah, our first race in high school, I'll always remember it. It was at this venue called Mount Hoare in Northern Vermont, um, actually kind of close to Craftsbury. And it was the second or third time I was ever on skate skis. And my brother and I like didn't have any of the muscles adapted to, you know, any of the glutes or like any hip muscles that you need to skate. And it was, I remember it was like up for 2K and then you go to an orange traffic cone, turn around and go down because <laughs> there was little snow that year. And um, it was about zero degrees Fahrenheit and we didn't know what wind briefs were. So <laughs> we were not prepared. <laughs> it was so cold. And I think we just like sat in the van and then just went out to the race. Um, my brother suffered really bad asthma attack. I think he had to drop out like a quarter way through the race. And then I had to stop because my legs hurt so bad, like halfway through the race. And after that, <laughs> my brother and I were like, Nordic skiing is awful. We should quit. This is not fun. <laughs> but we didn't quit, luckily, and kept going. And uh, yeah, that's kind of how it started. And then just got a little bit faster later on. Um, and then, I mean, yeah, it's just starting ski racing was, it was funny. Like, we, I used it for training for running, essentially, is what I used it for. I wasn't good. Um, 
Burlington High School was not a good ski team. Um, we just it was just more about having fun, just like hanging out with our friends. Some of the kids that ran cross country did the Nordic ski team for fun. It was kind of more about like goofing off and and enjoying our time together than actually hard training until you know junior and senior year of high school when we got more competitive. Um, I also remember our freshman year, uh, we tried to we went to J two. Uh, slash Eastern High School Championship Qualifier, which is like the regional races below JOs or what it's now, JNs. Um, and I remember it's like a 2K classic in the morning, 2K skate in the afternoon to try and qualify. And we didn't know how to warm up or cool down. <laughs> and I think my brother and Andrew and I, we got like in the reverse podium or very close to it. In both races and in between races, we were eating gummy bears in his mom's minivan to like fuel up for them. It it was a it was a mess, but it was fun. <laughs> so that's how I started. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and you got better during high school. Did you also work with the Mansfield Nordic Club when you were in high school? Exactly. Yeah. So um, as I progressed with running and skiing, just kind of getting a little stronger and maturing every year, I got a bit faster. And then we joined Mansfield Nordic training um training group which it was then and it was only twice a week tuesday and thursday evenings it wasn't nearly as big or as popular as it is now um and that's kind of when we like started roller skiing i remember and it was just like a really a bunch of really hard workouts and that's kind of what got us a bit more serious into ski racing when you were in high school did you have any special mentors anyone that took you under the wing and helped you out yeah there was there was a lot actually um at Mansfield Nordic, um, they're uh, like Chase Marston and Noah Brodingham, which were, they were great athletes in Vermont and um, they raced for Middlebury College actually. And they were both kind of like assistant coaches and they helped provide so much inspiration for us, like being from the same area, CVU area and MMU area. Um, and watching them ski in the winter, we were just like blown away with how fast they could move. And like, they were only a few years older than us. And I remember Noah Brodingham pulled me aside the summer before my senior year of high school. And he's like, Ben, you, you can win state championships if you keep it up. And I'm like, you're crazy. Like, there's no way, there's no way I could do that. It just seemed like so far away, but they like instill that confidence. And, and I did win both state championships that year with the hard training and and just the advice and support of them. And also there was Anders Folaras, who was a Norwegian um, skier. He skied in, I think for Bozeman um, in college. And he was in Vermont for a summer too. Um, and good friends with Jurgen Ewell, who was 10K classic NCAA champion from UVM, a German. And both those guys um, kind of took us under their wing and trained with us a little bit. And they were very influential. And then, of course, Jake Hollenbach. So if anyone's from East, East Coast biking, they'll know him and skiing. He's a, quite a legend in Vermont for cycling, uh, the cycling community. And he works at Ski Rack and was good friends with Spike. Um, and so he brought me to my first ever Eastern Cups my senior year of high school and drove me there and kind of coached me with waxing and warm-up and, and mental training and kind of just like, balance of life and sport and he's been mentoring me ever since i mean i've been contacting him for advice even this past spring um he's such a great guy and they've all these guys have just really really helped 
uh, mentor me. And there's many others, of course, all the coaches I've ever had. So It's amazing to me that your first Eastern Cup race was your senior year because you were pretty quick at that point. Yeah, yeah, that was, um, that was a big change. Our first Eastern Cups were senior year of high school um, that I went to, and I went to four of them and you needed four to qualify and I didn't do any sprints because I didn't know how to sprint and so Jake my mentor was like we're gonna do four distance races and you need four to qualify and if you do well you'll make it and I did well enough in those four so it was yeah it was cool wow yeah where'd you go to college I went to middle Middlebury college yeah and you skied in college I did yes yeah how was that experience it was amazing yeah um I was really, really happy to go to Middlebury College. I was, had Andrew Gardner for three years and then Andrew Johnson for one year. And Patty Ross was the assistant coach throughout. And she was a, an amazing inspiration as well. Um, it was, I mean, and it was so great. Like my first uh, year on the team, I had Noah Brottingham and Chase Marston, both on the team who were my mentors from earlier. And so it was just really, really amazing to be able to ski on the team with the people you idolized. And it, it was really fun. And uh we trained hard and had a good dynamic. You got quite fast. Cause I remember after you graduated and you moved to Sun Valley, that was the first time I met you and did much with you. You were already right out of the gate at Sun Valley, really fast, especially distance skate skier. Mm-hmm. So you improved a whole heck of a lot while you were at yeah. that That's obvious. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So um, why Sun Valley? First of all, cause you're Eastern through and through. Mm-hmm. And then you pop up in Sun Valley and the team there. What, what made you choose Sun Valley? Just want to have a Western adventure? or? What? Well, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, so I picked Sun Valley because I trained in Sun Valley for two or three summers um, while at Middlebury College because Andrew Gardner kind of suggested that, you know, probably shouldn't just stay around Burlington, Vermont. There's not um, a serious training group based in Burlington. The terrain is not quite as good. And we were honestly getting bored of like, running around Burlington, my brother and I every day. So um, he suggested Sun Valley. There was a popular training group, you know, college training group out there. Uh, Altitude training is also good to mix it up, add a little bit of fitness. Um, And so then I just trained there for two or three summers and met, you know, with Colin Rogers, um, who also his dad, Dale Rogers, coached me my junior year of high school. So I had that connection there. Yeah. A lot of people aren't familiar with unless you're from the East and then you really appreciate him. He is a legend. Yes. So So, um, were you training with Tommy Smith then in that, in that coaches uh, college summer group? Yeah. Yeah. Rick and and Tommy and, and and sometimes with Colin and the gold team. So yeah, it was great. It was, it was such a great um, time out there. We had a whole bunch of kids, you know, renting a condo and it was, they were really fun summers and we trained hard and we trained a lot. So after that, Colin, um, reached out to me and asked if I wanted to ski on the team. And I was like, absolutely. So yeah, it was fun. Colin's a fellow Vermont boy, of course. Yep. Probably didn't hurt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cool. Um, when you were in Sun Valley training with the elite team, you had some really bad problems with your inner ears and with vertigo. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have issues like that. It, it, it doesn't kind of get out. They don't talk about it or whatever. Mm-hmm. I was hoping you wouldn't mind talking about it and how you were able to resolve it in case you can help someone who might be listening or give them hope at least. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I hope someone's listening so I can give a little bit of help, but yeah. So I have um, BPPV, which is benign paroxysmal uh, positional vertigo. Um, And basically it's just when 
there's these like little crystals inside your inner ear fluid and they touch this sensitive membrane um, that tells you, you know, what's up, what's down, left, right, et cetera. And sometimes those little crystals get um, kind of messed up or dislodged and it makes you feel like up is down and right is left. And, and usually it's, it's kind of like, for me, it's feeling like I'm walking on the deck of a ship or like the world's spinning, um, which is sometimes mild and sometimes really severe. First time I got it was sophomore year of high school. Um, we were driving in a, in a van to go to a cross country running race in the fall. And I spent too much time like looking backwards in the van, mm. talking to my teammates. I got like pretty car sick and then proceeded to like throw up a few times and then went to the hospital for two days um, because I was so dizzy. I like, couldn't stand up or walk on my own. Um, so that was like the first time. And then I was like, okay, this is a problem. Um, and then I've been really careful traveling ever since, like looking out of the front window, not reading, just staying focused. Um, so there are common ways to fix uh, vertigo. And that's one is called the Epley maneuver, which is where someone manually like tilts your head to try to get the crystals to like settle. So it doesn't feel like you're spinning. Um, but whoever's listening and if they've tried the Epley maneuver and it doesn't work, I would suggest what's called the half somersault maneuver. Uh, you can just Google it and it's a way um, where you can do it yourself and you just like maneuver your head and I find it helps it uh, a lot better. But yeah, in Sun Valley, I had a pretty serious um, bout with vertigo. My first, it was West Yellowstone Super Tour, usually what's the first race of the season. And we like drove in, must have drove, I don't know, however many hours it takes from Sun Valley. And then we did like an evening ski before uh, settling in for the week. And I remember going into the hotel and you know how they have the little coffee bar and the tea and whatever. And I got a cup of black tea and I chugged it cause I was thirsty. And I think the caffeine, the caffeine can be a factor. And within 30 seconds I had really bad vertigo and it lasted for five days. So I was just like in the condo or apartment thing that we were staying in, just lying in my bed, like trying not to do anything. Um, but luckily I could race the Sunday distance race, but I had to skip the sprint. Um, that, that whole winter, you were really fighting with that, huh? You were struggling a lot with that. With yeah. That well, I mean, so I struggled a bit with that. I also had several other injuries. I had some knee injuries uh, from a crash the previous winter and hip flexor injuries. Um, I mean, I had, a, I had a whole bunch of injuries that year. Um, but yeah, vertigo has been on and off. I, I actually had a really bad bout with it in the 2019 Holman colon. Um, that was just, yeah, two years ago, I guess. Um, and you had a heck of a race though, didn't you? If I remember correctly. I actually, no, I had to drop out of that one because of vertigo. Going really well until you dropped out. Um, not great. Okay, <laughs> it was, I, 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 last winter I had a good, really good race. For oh, okay. the first Cause I remember yeah. you had a really good one. I was yelling yeah. at TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. But two, two winters ago, um, I think it was the smoke. You know how all the Norwegians like cook sausages and, and all sorts of yeah. stuff at Frogna Saturn? Yeah. Um, it, I think it was the smoke that triggered my vertigo. And as I was skiing up Frogna Saturn, I had to use my poles to like keep me upright. And I kept thinking I was going to fall like into the snow. And then I got nauseous and couldn't take my feeds. And then obviously you get cramps and whatever. So I finished four of the six laps. And I, that was the first, the only race I've dropped out of without like injury, I think. Um, but yeah, that it's, uh, it's rough, but I think to those who are listening, 
um, if you do have vertigo or suffer from it or get it triggered, I think for me, it's a lot of like, you have to limit your emotional stress. And so usually I'm in a stressful environment or stressed out for some reason, hydrate, like stay hydrated with electrolytes and avoiding alcohol and caffeine. Um, sometimes that can be triggering. Um, and some people get it from motion sickness. So traveling is challenging. So I like, I always try to look out the front window of a car if possible. Don't read while driving, stuff like that. Yeah. So it's a, it's a hard to imagine being in a situation that I've been in and am still in and that you have been in and are you, are you still struggling with this at all? I no, I mean, I'm pretty careful with it. Like, um, I, I can be pretty sensitive to when I feel it coming. And then right. when I do, I, it like, it's so weird. Sometimes I just feel really sensitive. Like if I turn my head a little bit, it'll be like, Whoa. Right. Um, and I try to hydrate with electrolytes and, try not to like move my head very much. Um, it's, I mean, it's weird. You have to be very careful. Usually I'll maybe I'll have to skip a workout or two, skip a few days of training. Um, I mean, after the Holman colon, I had to take four days off basically. Like my, I couldn't my, do. My point is you've just gotten better at managing. It. Yeah. For the most part, nothing's really changed. You just gotten much better at managing it. More just yep. realizing that actions have consequences and so on. And yeah. what I wanted to say was I, I'm dealing with, and I have been for, 13 years now, something similar hmm. where either one of us would talk to a quote unquote normal person and they'd think, wow, either those guys are really unlucky or they'd think, man, those guys are a couple of head cases <laughs> yeah. or, you know, or they'd think, well, I'm lucky because I don't have to deal with that stuff. But bottom line is it's, it's, they're like weird symptoms and a weird condition that other normal people not only don't have to deal with, but don't even have to think about it. And, yeah. and what happens then is if this happens to somebody like us, you're in this hopeless feeling because doctors aren't at all informed when it comes to weird stuff like this. And yep. you have to, you know, you get some help from doctors, but for the most part, you have to figure it out yourself. Mm -hmm. And it can be a really helpless, super helpless type feeling. Yep. Do you have any advice for someone who's struggling with any type of this affliction where they feel super isolated and helpless and, and, and without, without good help from, from the medical community? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a really challenging place to be in. I would say reach out to the people that, you know, you care about and care about you and who you trust. Usually a parent or guardian, close friends. Um, listen to your body. Usually when this happens, you shouldn't be training hard um, or racing. Like if you need to rest and your body is giving you some weird symptoms, you should be like, well, I need to rest. I need to take care of myself. I need to address it. Definitely uh, see a doctor. My The doctor that I saw, I mean, he... He prescribed meclizine hydrochloride, which is essentially Dramamine, but it doesn't fix vertigo. It's more of a preventative measure. It doesn't do anything. So, I mean, Googling, like I Googled it and I actually found the half somersault maneuver from that um, versus the Epley maneuver. Um, so I don't know. I mean, Google can also lead you to a bunch of weird symptoms that you don't have. Have you, uh, have you found a Facebook kind of uh, support site where you have a whole bunch, you find a whole bunch of people who have similar symptoms? have a diagnosis and then you compare notes with them? I haven't, but I'm sure they're out there. And I'm sure if you have a, a condition that's not as popular and not, not as uh, easily diagnosed by a physician, then I'm sure there are support groups out there and just definitely like look around, you know, don't be afraid to choose a non uh, traditional route. Yeah. And, and um, for sure also listen to your body and kind of making yourself your number one 
healer is so important. Like you say, you stay away from caffeine and it helps. Well, what does that have to do with crystals in the ear? Like, what yeah. the heck? But the bottom know. line is, it sounds like voodoo, but who cares, right? If you're in pain like that, you'll try anything and you, you come up with a cause and effect and they say, okay, if I don't do these things, I feel better. If I do these things, even though it doesn't make any sense, I'm in a hurt locker. So, okay, that's what yeah. I'm going to do and not going to do, you know? And as, as crazy as it sounds, you have to trust yeah. the, 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 the information your body's giving you and, and go with it, as crazy as it sounds. So. Thanks for that yeah. information because there are a lot of people with, that are struggling with things that are, are hard to explain. And, yeah. uh, and so I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Okay. So you switched from Sun Valley to the Green Racing Project and stayed mm -hmm. with that team until you retired this last spring from full-time racing. Mm -hmm. What was it about the green team that worked so well for you? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reasons. Um, yeah, as I said, I struggled with vertigo and injuries in Sun Valley. I think the altitude um, also kind of got to me. I couldn't recover quite as well. Um, but the biggest reason uh, was for family. Um, so my grandfather uh, passed away in the Christmas of uh, 2015. So I was halfway between my last season at Sun Valley. And I just needed to be closer to home, um, closer to my parents, closer to my grandmother. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a really hard time. That was a really hard winter. And at the end of the day, I had the opportunity, you know, as a skier, you, you can move between teams. Um, and I'm from Vermont, you know, it's an hour and a half, Craftsbury is an hour and a half from my home. So I realized I needed to go home and uh, it helped a lot. And I think I'm also, I like being close to home. I have a very good relationship with my family and it's important to me. So I made the choice to, uh, to leave Sun Valley and to join the, to apply and join the Green Racing Project. Um, and in addition, I think sea level training for me is, is better for longer periods of time. I think altitude is great for short periods um, for myself. Obviously, each, each, each skier has their own preference, but I think um, training with Peppa and, and the sea level is good training for me. So this isn't a loaded question. It's yeah. <laughs> an uninformed question. So don't read anything into it. Yep. How did you enjoy having Peppa as your coach? I love Peppa. <laughs> I mean, I think she is one of the best coaches in the country, if not the world. I, I um, really enjoy her scientific approach to training and, and her background is so, she's so knowledgeable. Like she has a master's in sports physiology and she, she also doesn't stop learning, which I think is so key to being a high level coach of any sport, like sports change every year. I mean, you've seen technique changes within the past two seasons, like, and she's always learning what they're doing next and then bringing it to us. I mean, we, we feel like Guinea pigs sometimes she's like testing a new training program every summer on the GRP and sees what works and what doesn't and keeps. And she always is, is learning, always changing. And, uh, and she's tough, you know, she pushes you hard. Um, and, I think she can be like, if you listen to your body and do her training and sometimes back off whenever you need rest, I think you can be the best athlete uh, that you can be. You certainly improved very quickly after switching to the green racing project. Mm -hmm. The, my trepidation asking that question was, I, I only saw great things between you and Peppa and you obviously improved tremendously. But I was told recently that some a particular type of man who had been on the team could have some big problems with Peppa just because of personality. Certain men have certain personality conflicts with Peppa. And 
Um, I saw no evidence of this, which is why I was careful because uh, and asking because yeah. I didn't want to, um, you know, ambush. But Peppa certainly seemed to have been a superb coach for you. And yeah. as far as I'm concerned, everyone who's joined the program seems to have thrived under her. Yeah. I just want to be careful in asking that question. That's where I was coming from. Oh, of course. I mean, I also think like you can have the best coach in the world. And if you have an athlete that likes to train a certain way, it might not work and, and vice versa. So, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's not only do you need a great coach, you need a coach that works with your training style. And I, I think I do well when a coach tells me what to do and I do it. And like some, some athletes have a very individual sense of training and they know their body maybe more than me, or they, they know what works well for them. For me, I just like to go out and I'll, I'll listen to my body, but then also I trust, I trust my coach. And I think that Peppa knows way more than I do about training. Um, and so then I take what I've learned about my body. I mean, I've done a little bit less running workouts because of my injuries. I add a little bit of biking and then I do her training. Um, and then I think it just works for me. So there's been some publicity recently to the fact that there aren't that many uh, elite, especially elite female crossing ski coaches in the country. Um, Peppa is very successful and worked very well for you. Was there any kind of change to the dynamic in that she was a woman or, I mean, I don't know how that plays a role really, but can you, I imagine, was there any kind of negatives and positives to that dynamic at all? I, I can't really think of any personally. Um, I mean, nothing that like jumps to mind. I, I've always loved the female coaches I've had. Patty Ross at Middlebury was very influential um, to me. I mean, I, I don't know. It, I think it also depends on people's style, um, what they, they look for in a coach. I mean, Peppa is, is very knowledgeable. She, she's got a firm grip on what she believes and she, she's, she's forceful. She's strong. She's a very strong coach. Like, she she believes in what she's learned and i think some people do really well with that but if they disagree then it's kind of hard to disagree as well um but yeah i mean i don't know i don't really think of it in that in that sense i don't maybe it's even more powerful that she's a really really strong woman and that maybe i just look up to that and and i think it's really great to have a female coach that can bring both male and female athletes to the top of the podium i haven't talked to everybody that peppa's ever worked with obviously mm -hmm. but Everyone, and I know basically everybody on the green team and everyone who has been on the green team, and I've talked to most of them, and I haven't seen, I don't know anyone who has had a lot of contact with Peppa who doesn't have the absolute highest admiration and respect for her. Not yep. one single person. So I'm a little baffled by some of the, I don't know, the talk that's happened a little bit, you know, that little, well, you know, yep. It could be an issue and so on because she seems to be as respected as anybody ever in the coach in coaching by those that she had coached. I mean, yeah. everyone has a reverence for her and a huge appreciation for not only her work ethic, not only how much she cares, but also her knowledge and where she comes from. She's always playing with things and she's scientific and she's enthusiastic. And also um, she will do anything for any one of her athletes. Yes. Yeah. yeah I mean, she's, Kind of the best case scenario, absolutely. Yeah, I mean that's a big reason why I joined. She she pours her heart and soul into the work. She cares for her athletes more than a coach, and and it's yeah. I think being an athlete is a is just a wonderful wonderful thing to have as an athlete. Cool. Well, let me let me um, switch gears here. Mm -hmm. In 2019, you did the Tour de Ski. 
Mm -hmm. there, aren't, there are very few American men who have done the Tour de Ski, much mm -hmm. less, I don't even know if any of them have ever finished it. So um, you probably know that, but you finished <laughs> 42nd. Can you tell us about the experience of doing the Tour de Ski? Because this is unique, obviously. Yes. Yeah, it was, it was wild. <laughs> um, yeah, we started in Toe Block and did, um, I mean, it was just so cool to be part of the Tour de Ski uh, their opening ceremony, you know, they had like a big show and, and introducing the countries and um, being part of the team that was to do the tour to ski. And my goal was to finish it. Um, some of the skiers wanted to like do a certain race really well, which is, you know, admirable. Obviously it can take a lot out of you. So you want to plan the season. Um, but it was, it was an amazing experience. It was really challenging though. I mean, racing, um, we raced at toe block for two days and then um, traveled and then raced um, for a day and then traveled, raced two days and then traveled and raced two days. So it was a, you know, a few rest days thrown in there too, but it was an incredible experience um, and very, very hard. Like I thought I, I went in feeling very fit and then I think I might have gotten some kind of, maybe some tiny bug. Like I just felt off that week, um, but I still continued to race and, and wanted to finish. and. And I thought my last race actually felt like one of the better ones. But. So was it more or less the second you're done with your race, you're thinking about getting your body ready for the next race? Yes. Because recovery is so difficult and important. Yes. I mean, so yeah, I guess, yeah, I can go into a bit more detail about it. Like you, you warm up well for the race, especially in the beginning of the week. And then you finish like immediately like protein shake or car carbs, whatever you can get immediately short cool down like quite short cool down maybe just like a jog usually jogging uh, releases lactic acid in the legs easier than skiing so usually i take the boots off running shoes on change your shirt you know jog hotel shower lie down <laughs> like and then or if we finish a race like change eat get in the van drive three or four hours to the next venue and you just try to like i mean i am not great at staying calm in europe because the world cup is so crazy and i'm so excited and um, I just get worked up about it. It's really fun. Um, but staying calm and like trying to just save your energy. Um, and then by the end of the week, you're warming up for 15 minutes, like testing your skis, get on the starting line. I was so tired that I don't think I could have done any intensity before the races. It wasn't ideal, but you just get, get to the starting line and do your best. Um, cool down, like walk to the trailer and get some food. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. It was, it was wild. Like watching your energy just deplete through the week and trying to monitor that basically. Were you eating some very, I guess, carbohydrate and calorie rich foods during the tour de ski much that you wouldn't mm -hmm. you know, eat in a way that you wouldn't normally eat? No, I'd, I mean, I'd eat like as, as much as I could, obviously while, I mean, not like overeating, but Definitely eating what I could. It was also interesting, like when we went to Germany for the middle of the tour, uh, tour to ski, um, the food got like heavier and richer. So like our stomachs sometimes didn't like that. You almost need like lighter carbs, like plain pasta, but we were eating like these fried meats and like thick sauces. And it was just like, I mean, it's part of the tour to ski. Like you have to be able to adapt, you know, and, and work with what you got. We couldn't, some teams might be able to custom make every meal, but some teams can't. And, and so we kind of would be put in this hotel and try to pick what, what we could. And 
sometimes you can't really choose exactly what you need. So you have to work with what you got and eat as well as you can. Yeah. What about hydration with all that racing? Did you have a hard time staying hydrated? Did you have to take electrolyte solutions and stuff like that to, to meet, to, to hold enough moisture in your body? Yeah, I take electrolytes whenever I go to these big race events and especially like electrolytes in the morning, electrolytes during the race after, or, you know, in the warm up bottles after the race. I mean, taking it every day for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, in terms of testing skis, did the carefulness deteriorate during the tour to ski as you got more and more tired and, you know, were there things that you kind of focused more on recovery things like that. And perhaps after a while, did you, did you focus a little bit less on the, the pre-race is super careful yeah. routine or how'd that work? Well, luckily we had, you know, such amazing wax techs that they would, sometimes they would test it. Like I would be like, I would love to test these two pairs because I know that they're good in these conditions. And then they would test, do most of the testing, maybe get it down to two pairs. And then I would jump on for 10 minutes and be like, I like this one or this one. Um, sometimes if it was a really easy choice, I don't have a, a super large fleet sometimes they can test it in 10 minutes and be like clear winner. And so I'm like, okay, I don't have to worry about it. Cool. Um, which is, which is really nice actually for, I, I don't love the ski testing um, routine. Like I, I don't like overthinking it or, or freaking out if I pick the wrong skis. I, I also don't, I know I don't have the best feel um, for ski testing. I just haven't done it enough. Um, and these wax techs, I mean, they can tell like, instantly it take me 10 minutes to look on the skis and like figure out what i need to do um so i trust i trust my wax techs more than i trust myself so i'll be like if you think it's faster i completely believe you that's really important that's great yeah it's helpful for me and i think for them they don't have to worry you know argue with an athlete about what they think yeah. i'll just be like okay <laughs> so. but, but i guess what i'm saying also is let's say you were doing one world cup race that was a 30k skate for example right the care in your pre-race routine in terms mm -hmm. of your warm-up and your ski selection, et cetera, et cetera, was probably would be a lot more diligent than let's say after on your seventh stage of the tortoise ski when you're pretty much trying to get out of bed and not throw your back out before the start because you're so right. stiff and hurting, you know? Yes, it's, that's it's, for sure. Yeah. The ski selection plays less of a role, at least your direct role in that because you've got bigger fish to fry, you know? <laughs> yeah, like it's more about my mental state and my energy and like the wax techs, luckily that we have amazing wax techs that work very hard. They can deal with the skis and I have to deal with my own like get ready to race and, and try, to, try to make it okay. <laughs> you were to do, you're not going to, assuming things continue the way they're going, but if you were to do the tour de ski again someday, mm -hmm. um, would you approach it differently or is there something that you would bring with you that you didn't have or, you know, what did you learn that you could take with you for next time? Yeah, that's a really good question. I would um, go to Europe a little earlier than I did last time. I went this like six days before and it wasn't quite enough to get used to the time and everything. Um, and I would try to approach it much more calmly I mean, when I go to the world cup, I get very excited because it's for me, I don't know if I'll ever get used to just how, amazing opportunity is but i think that that makes me overthink things it makes me a little on edge um, i don't feel quite as grounded um, and so i don't race as well on the world cup i don't think because of that reason um, and i think i would like to, to stay stay more grounded stay more calm um, immediately let go of that i mean a bad race that's something i need to work on anyway like in the tour to ski you have seven races 
or six races or whatever it is in like a week. So if you have a bad race, I mean, you have to let go of it instantly. You can't drag that to the next race. It's always a new opportunity. You never know who's going to get sick, who's going to get tired. Like you can have a good day. Some days you feel awful and you have a good day. Some days the opposite. So it's, it's more just about like taking it in stride, kind of just flowing with the race week instead of approaching every race like it's a weekend race because it's not really the way to do it. You don't have the energy that you do for you know, one race a week. Um, so you have to approach it a little bit more calmly, I think. Sure. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So looking at your career, and, and I didn't actually look at your results because I felt like I know you well enough, but mm-hmm. um, it seems to me you're on average, you've been a better skater than a classic skier. At least initially in your career you were, for sure, mm-hmm. I thought. But you won the national championship in a 30K, and you've had some other really good classic races. Mm-hmm. What is your... You know, if, if you had one race for all the marbles, would it be, it'd be a distance race, I assume. Would it be mm-hmm. classic or skate? Uh, 15K say? classic. That's, that's for you, your bread and butter race, 15K classic. Or yeah. 10K, but um, one of the two. Oh, so you can yep. see yourself be a better classic distance skier than skater. Yeah, I, I've always been more comfortable classicking. Maybe that's from my years of classic skiing um, before I learned how to skate. I actually feel like I learned how to skate well in 2017 20 yeah 2017 with peppas like one or two years of peppas training i actually got the hang of skating but i always i always felt comfortable classicking i have developed i think skating quite well um the last two years they felt pretty even actually um but yeah i just i don't know if i i mean if i have good kick i'm yeah 10 15k classic (laughs) but kick out and i think i had that impression because your early years with sun valley mm-hmm. you had the hip flexor and knee issues which yep. affected your uh, classic skiing more mm-hmm. and then your yeah. skate results were excellent you won a uh, super tour and you were t- right up there in a noram and mm-hmm. you were really competitive in skate and i didn't actually know you before that i was thinking holy crap this guy is a heck of a skier and mm-hmm. at, the t- at those years it was more skating so I think that's why I pigeonholed you as a yeah. skater. And then oh, yeah. later I mean, on, all of a sudden, you started killing it in classic races. I'm like, what is going on here? Yeah. <laughs> Which is yeah. unusual, you know? But yeah, sense because it was more or less because of injuries. Right, right. Okay. Well, what, so what I want to say is you won the 30K Classic Mass Start U.S. National Championship in 2017 at Soldier Hollow. Mm-hmm. And the course was super tough. Yep. And you talk about how the race unfolded because it was a mass start. So that's a mm-hmm. lot easier to, you know, kind of give a play-by-play as compared to interval start. And also what, what it meant to you winning a national championship title. Yeah. I mean, that day was an amazing day. It, um, it started not very amazing. I actually was very tired when I started warming up. I talked to Peppa. I was like, I don't know if I should race today. Actually, like I, I feel really my heart rate's all over the place. Like my effort feels way too hard for the speed I'm warming up at. And she's like, just go out there and just like do what you can. And I think that actually made my race um, better because I took off all mental, um, expectations. Um, cause I was like, Oh, I feel, I feel terrible. I'm just going to go out there and see what happens. And she's like, if you feel really bad, you can drop out. I'm like, all right. So I get to the starting line and Nick, uh, crushed the skis that day. I mean, that was probably some of the best skis I've ever had. Um, and started, I was bib 14. So I started, I don't know, second or third row. And then, um, we kind of like wind up that first long climb and, you know, everyone's just like looking around and, and seeing 
what the what the vibe is like in the front of the pack and i try to work my way up to the front 10 or whatever and we stayed that way a little bit uh for a lap or two and then i started to realize there's that top section where you're double pulling flat across to the feed zone um kind of like yeah like the top of the course after the first climbing and my double pulling felt like my skis were, were feeling really good and it felt like i was holding back like i had to hold back to stay with the pack which is a wonderful feeling <laughs> like where, I mean, you never have that basically in a race. So I felt like I was like, okay, like I'm feeling really good clearly. So I, and I don't like to like push super hard in the beginning of 30 Ks because I think it's a waste of energy. I, I don't think it's very smart. Um, it's a big risk. And with how I felt that morning, I, I'm not going to like trust some good feeling at the 4k in. So after two or three laps, um, I started to like get myself to the front consistently do you remember how long the lap was? Was it a 5K? Was it six laps? No, lap? it was like, it was a, it wasn't two and a half K. It was maybe three, seven, five. Okay. So you're doing we a lot. Did, laps. Yeah, we did a lot, six laps, I think. Or no, if the math, no, that's not, I don't know. Um, we, did, we did a bunch of laps. It was okay. like, yeah. Um, I think we did at least six, maybe eight laps. Um, yeah. So, so it was, a, it was a lot of laps up, up those climbs. Um, <clears throat> And so I remember I, I kind of found myself in the front like multiple times, like leading the race. I'm like, I don't want to be leading right now. Like I'm, I want to be sitting and resting. And then I, I don't know, I just started breaking away like a little bit and then would like back off to stay with the pack. Cause I just didn't know what was going on. It was weird. I was like, what is happening to my body? Like it feels so good. And then, um, and then I, I realized that like I, I could actually do something with this. So then David Norris and I actually kind of broke away um, just after halfway through and I would push the climbs cause my kick was better, but his skis were faster and slicker. So on all the steep climbs, I would like kind of run up the hill on my clister. Um, and then he would catch me on the downhills and I was like, all right, so it's a downhill finish, right? So if we're neck and neck, he's going to beat me cause his skis are faster. So if I want to win, which seemed possible, I needed to have a gap um, for that last downhill. And, um, yeah, so the, I think with two laps to go, I decided to make a move on that first long climb and I just kept hammering and I didn't quite feel like I was maxed out yet. Um, and I was like getting, pushing that red line. And then I, with like one and a half laps to go every hill, I was like, I got to go as hard as I can and, and built up a gap of, I think up to 40 seconds. And then, got yeah went down that tucking down that last hill and my parents like were there in person which was amazing and they were like screaming their heads off and everyone was freaking out and i was like oh my god i'm gonna win u.s national championships and then that last downhill the last two downhills i'm like please don't fall like please don't crash <laughs> right now just hold it together and then swooped around to the last like 100 meters and it was snowing lightly i think so there was like fresh snow in the tracks and so i almost actually face planted because my clister caught that snow and I had like stumble and kind of like half striding, half double pulling into the finish. And it was a really special day because I feel like I was quite frustrated. Um, the two years in Sun Valley, I feel like I never really got the result that, um, I feel like I could have, like, I just thought I had a bit more. And so that day, um, winning nationals was, it was like really powerful for me to, to know that that's what I could do and that I actually did it. And I don't mean to think that like I'm the best skier in the country. I was just part of a good group of skiers. And on that day I had really good skis and I felt 
I felt strong, which I think is, is how ski racing works. Like unless someone's winning by several minutes, every single race, everyone's pretty similar. So whoever you combine good feeling with, with good luck, and then you have a good race. And, and that's kind of what you need to do uh, to win these championships. And obviously nationals only happens once a year. So then the percentage of that happening all in one day is even less. So I, it was, I was lucky to have that. And I felt really good that day. Absolutely. But it also needs to be said, the course that day was really difficult. It went up yeah. the hollow. That's yep. the first long hill you're talking about. It's a really long, challenging hill. Mm-hmm. And it also went up Hermo to bottom to top. Yep. And between them, there's actually a substantial climb that most people don't consider, but there's a yep. good climb in between them. And um, there's a, and if you're going up, doing that loop, let's say eight times, which I think is what it was, mm-hmm. you're looking at eight times up Hermodes and eight times up the hollow. There's nowhere to hide. Yep. You're either fit or you're not. And if you're not fit and in good form, you're gone. You know, I mean, <laughs> It's, it was a the true championship course and won by a true champion that day. So I salute Thank you. you. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, that was a hard day, but yeah, it, it worked out well. Yeah. Like I said, you know, David Norris was, was there. It wasn't a soft field by any means, you know, the best, best guys yeah. in the country were there and, and it was the hardest course that we've had in many, many years, if, if not ever for a championship course like that. So, you know, that's a real feather in your cap. Well, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, I've run races before and I just had super fast skis and it wasn't that hard a course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole different deal, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let's switch gears again and talk about another race. I w- I would, I'd like you to talk about some other experience, racing experience you had that was really meaningful and emotion, emotional for you. Yeah. I mean, I think about this sometimes or I've been asked this question and I always have a race that jumps to mind. There's, there's a few of them but one's always like immediate and that's the 10 K classic NCAAs at uh, Middlebury in 2013. So my junior year of college, um, it was on home course, home field and individual start 10 K classic, which was my jam at that point. And I skied that race so hard and so well. And it was like, a, it was like 26 degrees Fahrenheit, cloudy, like good, hard tracks, covered clister, just, it was like bomber conditions. And I remember I went out really hard and didn't slow down what I felt like at all. And at the top of every single climb, I was completely gassed, like redlined. And then I would recover just enough by the bottom. Um, so the Middlebury course is kind of like a three leaf clover. So it's like a hill and then a, the A climb hill, steep climb, and then kind of a longer hill. And then we would go back into the stadium. And so every hill I was completely like redlined, like seeing stars and then just rest just enough. And yeah, I got fourth place that day, first American. And that was the, like a, the breakthrough race for my NCAA career. So first um, All-American, first top five, and it was a very exciting day. And I remember getting into that, like the last hundred meters, I like had serious tunnel vision, just like a little white spot in the middle. It's like, I got to see that finish line and then just like throw the boot and collapse. And it was, it was amazing because I didn't think like all the best races for me, I just didn't think about anything except going like 10 meters, the next 10 meters, just going fast. I didn't think about who I was racing. I didn't think about the Scott Patterson, who was the guy I was like focused on that race or that usually that time of year. I didn't think about the European racers that were supposed to win all the races. I didn't think about anything. I just tried to ski as hard as I could. And 
And ironically, it's actually hard to do that every race. And it happened that day and it all worked out really well. And I'll never forget that. And every time someone asks me like the best race ever, I just kind of go to that. I just feel like that was a good one. So do you like that course there, especially? Yeah. I mean, I, everyone kind of appreciates their home course when you train on it, you know, every winter for a few years. And I do like the middle break course. I haven't skied there in a while, but I really did enjoy that course. I thought it was hard and uh, had good solid climbs. Um, it was a fair course. Yeah, I liked it. So is that facility still called Breadloaf? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I will, I'm glad to say that's probably my favorite course to race on in the world. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's Absolutely. a good course. Taylor made for me. And the times mm-hmm. that I've raced there, it was my kind of snow, corn, fast corn snow. Nice. I've always been really good in fast corn snow. I'm <laughs> Easterner through and through, even though I've lived in the West forever. Yeah. I grew up on, on fast corn snow or slush or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, and back when I used to race on it, it, it was before it had been widened. So you have okay. these long yep. kind of stair step, kind of gradual, like there's mm-hmm. skiable climbs, which I really appreciate. Yep. I like those much better than the, just a wall, you know? Right. So the climbs are skiable. So if you're a good skier and fit, you can, you can ski really fast in the climbs. But the downhills and corn snow, before they widened those courses, were quite technical. Yep. I remember absolutely destroying everybody on the downhills, which I love to do. Yeah. Just flying on the downhills. You know, the people checking their speed. I'm just flying past them. And mm-hmm. in one race at NCAAs, I remember I, I uh, pushed the envelope too much. And I, I was in the air trying to avoid a tree. And I jumped. <laughs> I was going to hit a tree. And I jumped and kind of spun. And I, I, uh, my shoulder and hip graze the tree, you know, big, huge pine type tree. Yeah. Just graze it when I went around and then I landed and kept skiing. And I was like, oh my <laughs> gosh. You know? And mm-hmm. I, I just have absolutely love that course. Everything about it is so skiable. It's fun. Yeah, that's a fun course. Yeah, absolutely. But I really like the fact that it's so skiable. You know, it's not yeah. just a bunch of walls. There are some mm-hmm. steep sections, but it kind of um, stair steps up, you know, you have these yeah, sections that, that gradual and then steep and then gradual and steep. And, and if you're fit, then you work the graduals as mm-hmm. compared to just dying and, and then work in the wall and then just hanging on their tuck and the downhills you can work the downhills so hard mm-hmm. and make yep. tons of time on them. It's a real skiers course as far as I'm concerned. I love it there. Yeah. The graduals are really hard. So like when you aren't feeling good, it'll, it'll destroy you. But if you feel really good and you like work your technique, you can make so much time on those sections. Exactly. I absolutely yeah. love it there. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so Ben, you retired from full-time racing this spring. Can you tell us first about your job and then about maybe, well, first about your job. I'm excited to hear what you're doing. Yeah, so I'm a product technician at NRG uh, Systems in uh, Hinesburg, Vermont. And so what I do is I actually um, build and assemble like these sensors and data logging equipment uh, that's put on these very large-scale wind and solar uh, like utility companies. Uh, like wind farms and solar farms um, all around the world. So I'm like building these small uh, wind sensors and uh, temperature sensors and all sorts of like these little equipment that need to be on each unit um, in order to, you know, move the solar panels or change the, the like direction of the wind vanes and stuff like that. So it sounds like a dream job and career for any Nordic skier and any friend of the environment. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to work in renewable energies for as long as I can remember. I just feel like, I mean, energy is a massive problem for the human, human race basically in the, in the world right now. So I think that switching to renewables is 
is a great way to fix that problem. And I just want to do what I can in the renewable industry. And NRG is a really reputable company in, in this part of the state. Um, and I, uh, my cousin's fiance works there. So I think it's, um, he was an engineer for them for a few years and he spoke very highly of them. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a dream for sure. I'm really glad that I could uh, get a job there. And Heinsberg is just outside of Burlington. So you haven't had to kind of uproot and leave your, your home base. Right, exactly. Yeah, cool. I imagine it's uh, rewarding and also super motivating to work in a career field like that where you feel like, well, your values align with what you're actually doing. Yeah, no, it feels great whenever I like finish a day of work. It's, it's nice to know like I, whatever I did is actually, it's, it's, I mean, we ship all over the world. We ship even to like China and, and all these, these countries where what I'm doing is, is helping promote um, renewable energy. Like yeah. I'm, I'm part of that process and it feels really good. Yeah. Super. Well, here, I have a couple questions for you. First is mm -hmm. you have 32 World Cup starts and two World Championship starts what mean what this means to me is you are an experienced and elite world cup competitor you know that's 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 some pretty good experience there and they don't pick anybody to go to the world cups and world championships so you know you're you're elite very very elite what specifically do you think is lacking in the u.s men to be more competitive in distance racing yes that is a very good question and that is something i've thought a lot about and i've talked to my teammates and my competitors both on and off the world cup and just like looking at the whole situation being like, why can't the U S men be super competitive? Um, and I think, I mean, I don't, I don't have a, a very specific answer. Um, but I do think that what I see that we lack is, is kind of this, for lack of a better word, this like really united team effort on the men's side. I mean, I look at the women's team and what Matt Whitcomb has done and the women's team is, is amazing and it's in, inspirational. I think that we need to learn from it, but it's, it's kind of the nature of the beast as well. So you have all these elite teams, right. With all these very talented athletes trying so hard to get these very limited number of spots, right. So we're competing against each other. Then we get to the world cup and we want to do get top 30, get those points to stay on the U S ski team, which means we have to beat each other because we're kind of all fighting for the same spots. But once we get to the world cup, there's, you know, some people for period one, period two, maybe someone's there for two periods flying back and forth. Like if you did a race, some discretion, people come over for a race, it's always changing. And it's, it's hard to feel like we're just one solid team. It's also challenging because we don't train, especially with COVID now, but we don't really train a whole lot together during the summer. I mean, there's some training camps and, Placid, some in Soho, um, Stratton and GRP sometimes get together, but it's, it's challenging because we don't, from what I, from what I see and what I feel, we don't really feel like one, like full team. Um, I mean, it's, I'm not, I don't also want to diss the US ski team. They're doing the best they can, but like, I think we need more of a, a team vibe, like supporting each other, like, like kind of encouraging each other instead of, instead of trying to just get those spots for individual motiva motivation. Um, that's my opinion, obviously. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I just, um, it's almost like we just need to all put our egos aside. Yeah. And just be, all right. We need to like s step a little bit higher than, than what we want to do. We all want to fight. We all want to get those spots for personal glory, for personal goals, 
lifetime goals. I mean, you've been training for years. Like I want to get that top 30 really bad, but if I don't get it and David Norris does, I'm, I mean, you got to be really happy for these people and like promote that thing. But then I'm flying back to the U S and someone else is coming to take my spot. So it's, it's a very challenging time right now. Luckily, I mean, I think we have been getting better. We're getting, you know, people to start to crack that top 30. David Norris was consistent top 30 last year, which is awesome. He made the jump from like, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, where, where a lot of us are domestically. And he was like, boom, in the 20s. This is, it's so great. Like, he made the jump we've all wanted to do. And I think that with all the young skiers doing really well, um, I think in the next few years, we're going to see many more men in the top 30. I agree. Yeah. So how old are you? 28. Okay. So here's a tough question for you. Yeah. A follow-up. I asked David Norris that same question. This is the same David Norris you're talking about. He's a top-rated U.S. distance skier currently. He's got something like 15 top 30 World Cup results, so very accomplished. He commented that because it takes so much longer for an athlete to achieve a high level in distance due to the need to absorb the training over the years, as compared to sprint, you know, there's more of a need to absorb training over the years and train many hours over, over at a, you know, high volume for many years before you can really get the payoff. Mm-hmm. He thinks that many quit before they achieve their potential. Yep. I think that that is another answer for sure. Absolutely. So that, you know, here I am talking to you, you're one of the United States top distance skiers the last number of years. You were actually qualified to race world cups for this coming year. You're only 28, which, which means you're at your peak traditionally mm-hmm. in cross country <laughs> yep. and you're retired. And yep. so that's what David's opinion was. Not to discount your team dynamics thing. I think there's something to that too. But what do you think about that? I mean, I think it's true. I think, I, I mean, yeah, I can bring in a few more aspects of what I'm thinking about this. Like it does take so long to do. And we're in a culture in the United States of America where skiing is not even on the radar to like the national culture. So it, we're doing a counterculture sport. Um, and it takes so much dedication and effort and and finances like it's hard to keep funding your own ski career especially if you don't have the support then like, you have to join the team like the grp or, or a team that supports you and then you have to sacrifice so much to do that you know like not spending time with friends and family not accumulating wealth with a career or work experience i mean some skiers can do both which is fantastic um, but it's not super common and it's it's a very, I mean, it's a very challenging thing to do. And you see only what handful of like 10 skiers that can keep doing this for years and years and years. And that's, that is what it takes to be a great distance skier. Um, and it's, it's very hard to do that when the culture you live in, I mean, the ski culture is great, but it's very small and very tight knit. Um, but maybe in like, I don't know, it's, it's hard to do that in a culture that doesn't, support long-term distance skiing like Norway or Sweden or you know something like that. I raced. I was in the U.S. ski team starting in 85 and went all the way through, switched to biathlon, went all the way through 95, and then I retired from full-time mm-hmm. going for it. That's only 10 years. Mm-hmm. When I retired, I was national champion, you know, racing World Cups, doing decently, growing in the sport, continuing. And I just felt the need, uh, I, was, I got married. I felt the need to kind of move on and, and start the next chapter of my life, even though 
I've got a huge passion for ski racing. I mean, you know, without bounds. Um, so I understand where you're coming from. It's not like retiring at 28 when you're possibly at the peak of your, you know, you're still absorbing training and you've got a few years of your peak years. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. It depends mm. on what, what, what you want to do with your life, you know? Right. Um, but, but we're talking about ski racing. So I think that does contribute to us not perhaps being at the level of other countries because the other countries have a support system in place to let people mature enough to hit, to, to stay with it longer. So they absorb the training and then they're, they hit those levels, you know? Right. Yeah. I, I'm with you. So Ben, I've seen you uh, videos of you doing roller skiing intervals and looking quite good. Um, I think you're probably quite speedy. I, uh, I was surprised to find recently that you were on the list for this winter's Lillehammer and Davos World Cups. You were pre-qualified mm -hmm. and also tentatively committed to go to those races. Yes. And then I asked you about it and then you said, actually, this was, I think, one week ago, you said, actually, I just took myself off the list. So yeah. this is unusual for a person who retired from full-time racing and has got a, a demanding, exciting job and starting this career in renewable energy. And next thing you know, here you are doing roller skiing intervals in your neighborhood, which didn't look like really good terrain to me to prepare for the World Cup for. And, uh, and you were tentatively planning to go to Lillehammer and Davos for the World Cups. That's pretty cool. You st obviously still got a competitive fire and a love for cross-country ski racing. Yeah, I mean, it's challenging. So, yeah, I did decide to end full-time skiing uh, this past spring. And that was a very, very hard decision. Um, but I still... I mean, I still want to like hold on to that fitness and that strength. And I do enjoy pushing myself really hard, which is why I lasted, I guess, six years in pro skiing. But um, yeah, I've been trying to do intervals um, not consistently. I actually jumped in to do an interval workout with the green racing project this morning and got destroyed as I <laughs> expected. Um, those guys are very fast, but yeah, I, I really wanted to go to the World Cups um, this fall with COVID. It just wouldn't have worked out with work and quarantining, coming back and et cetera. Um, but it's, it's hard to say no to those World Cup starts. But I just, I don't know, I really want to keep, keep trying um, to push myself and, and to be as fast as I can, be as strong as I can. I'm, I'm gonna, I don't think I'm ever going to lose that, that, that desire for pushing myself more. Yeah. Cool. I'm the same way. And yeah. you know there are plenty of opportunities to go out there and bash your head against the wall. Yeah. And race, you know, it doesn't have to be in the world cup, yeah. <laughs> marathons, Eastern cup races, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And as you get older, you get more competitive, more competition. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't feel like I need to go to Europe to get my ass kicked. You know, I can do it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I got a question for you. Um, mm -hmm. You bike race at a very high level, mm -hmm. just mountain or do you road race as well? Oh, just mountain bike racing. Right. That's what I thought. You've written for the ski rack in Burlington, Vermont for many years. Um, my first question is, what role does bike racing fill for you? Are you close to as passionate about bike racing as you are about ski racing? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I, I got into bike racing uh, a few summers ago for fun, and I just like to mountain bike a lot. I use it for cross-training because um, I get injured if I run too much. So I know adding biking will like alleviate those injuries and, and let me train without having to rehab anything. And it's just really fun. <laughs> I think biking is way more fun than running. So, um, I mean, I think running has an important place in ski training as well. Um, but mountain biking is just it's half, it's just more fun. You know, you're focusing more on 
doing jumps and stuff and, and getting the flow of the trail. So then I, I did a lot of biking and jumped into a Craftsbury race and did well. And, and I figured, well, maybe I should take this a little more seriously. I talked to my mentor, Jake Hollenbeck, who is a great road and mountain bike racer. And he's like, I was also getting a little bit kind of worn down with some of the ski results if I wasn't very happy with it. And he's like, you should add bike racing into your summer training so you can race all year round. And it kind of like separates you don't put so much stress and energy just in ski racing and ski results. If I add like another season of racing, it mixes it up and it, it adds a little bit more um, change into a very monotonous routine. So I, I got a race bike and tried to race for specialized and ski rack and it became really fun to actually push myself on the bike. I also think it's really humbling to jump into racing other top athletes in their top sport when it's my second sport and I would get destroyed in the beginning of the season. Like I just don't have biking legs. And I mean, it's the real thing. The power that these cyclists can put out is mind blowing. And I think I'm a pretty fit, strong dude. And I get out there and I get destroyed. It's actually, it's great. It pushes me to get stronger on the bike. And I think something about what cycling has done mountain biking specifically, I mean, it's a lot more upper body than road. And um, it's a lot more like, using your brain to find the right route around rocks and roots and stuff. Kind of like when you're skiing, you're trying to find the smooth snow, you know, dodging ice and whatever. Um, and it is just a really fun challenge. And then I actually did this like local new England bike circuit and just kind of worked my way through the ranks. I would even podium several times in those races, which was really fun, but it, it added a lot more, um, the, the difference and the change I needed in training. I mean, Craftsbury is amazing. Don't get me wrong, but it can get repetitive, you know, all summer long, like roller skiing the same roads, running the same trails. After a few years, I was like, I need a little change um, in my training. And so I, I decided to add mountain biking. I could travel to some of the mountain bikes places around New England, which was really fun. It, it just kind of took my mind off the constant, like skiing, 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 which, which I thought was really helpful as an athlete and kind of helped me like progress a, little, a few more years. So for you, cycling complemented your ski racing. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's an interesting thing. I think some people need to have an off season from true competition. Yep. And if they do compete a bunch in the summer, let's say they're doing a running race series or bike racing series, they would be tired in the winter, <laughs> whatever reason. Yep. And other people like myself and like you, I, I, I'm happy racing in the summer and in the fall. Mm -hmm. And then I just need a little break and then I'm ready to race in the winter. And it seems to complement it. And it seems to like to be kind of a, almost like a professional year round trainer with mm -hmm. a couple of months of racing in the winter. That doesn't really jive well with me. You know, I much rather have a more like two racing seasons where you're more stimulated and you know, you're an elite level and there's, I don't know, it's somehow more stimulating than just kind of training eight months a year to race for three or four months a year. Yeah. And it, it, that puts a lot of pressure also on skiing. Like if you train six, seven months a year just for skiing, and then maybe you have a few bad races. I mean, that, that mentally and emotionally hurts because you, you kind of identify yourself more as a skier. And, and so it actually spreads out the emotional tolerance of your season kind of like as you, as you change it, change it over to biking as well. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's interesting. It seems like some people it doesn't work for at all. Right. Other people yeah. it works great for. I, I don't know yeah. if it's a physical thing or a mental thing or both, but it's interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you alluded to the ski rack. Um, mm -hmm. 
a couple times in our conversation, one of my longtime friends, and I'm sure someone you really looked up to and appreciated for years is named Spike Clayton. He was one of the owners of the ski rack. He was uh, a fantastic bike racer and just a great guy. Uh, he passed away this last, I guess, about a year ago now. Is that something? Right? Yeah, about a year yeah. ago. Um, do you, you want to mention anything, talk about Spike for a second, just to honor him? Yeah, yeah I mean, Spike Clayton was was not only an amazing guy all around, but like what he did to the community was, was really powerful. He hired me and my brother for our first real jobs at Ski Rack back in 2010 or so. Um, and then I've been just, I go to Ski Rack for everything. And, and it's just, it's more than just like a shop, but he's built, like I said, this community of, of like-minded people that use sport and love sport to like interact with their environment and ski rack's been voted the best sports shop in vermont like 10 years in a row or i don't have the stat but a lot and it's nationally renowned and the people that go there are lifelong customers it it just creates like this this friendship and and this community feeling in not only burlington but like vermont or new england as a whole um and he kind of like spearheaded that and he was he was just a really amazing person and we all miss him very much. Um, it was, it was great racing for him racing for ski rack. And I always felt good, like emailing him, like I had a great race, like, thanks for the support. And I know that, um, it, it was just great to have that relationship with him. Many years ago, I also mountain bike race on the ski rack team. Yep. And, uh, and he was one of my teammates and yeah. I had a blast doing that with him and I got to know him real well. And then I worked, that was before I was in the industry, anything like that. And then mm -hmm. I, was, I was a full-time athlete at the time. Um, and then I visit with him at length every year, mm -hmm. either at the outdoor retailer show, the ski show, or somewhere else regionally. And we visited every year. And a lot of our talk wasn't just business or it wasn't toco, but, you know, I would ask him, he would walk the show and I'd say, so what'd you see? And he'd come back with some macro level <laughs> observations, you know, which I really appreciated because I never got to leave my booth, you know. Right. And the last few years, he would come in and he would talk waxing exclusively for the most part because his son was on the UVM rec team, I guess is yep. maybe the, the way to put it. And, and Spike would go to all their events and wax for them. <laughs> and he was always yeah. talking to me about waxing and he'd give, asking, asking me for waxing tips and not only getting fast skis, but how to do it without spending a ton of money quickly mm -hmm. and easily, you know, efficiently. Yep. And, and uh, I love talking with Spike. And every time the last bunch of years we, we'd visit, he was talking about waxing for his son and all how much, how much of an absolute blast it was for him. And, and we'd also donate hats for the team because, you know, it was Spike. So of course, right. Yeah, of course. It was just great. So yeah, yeah. I had to miss him a lot too. And we've had a long history, but I, I know, I know you also had a long history and you missed him. So yeah, yeah he's a great guy. I had to bring him up. Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay, back to training a little bit. Um, the notion of a magic bullet workout, which in my opinion is kind of like a workout that kind of, if you do that one workout really well, you know you're going to be ready for the winter. Mm -hmm. The notion is kind of a false notion, of course. There's, there's no such thing. But right. that said, uh, there are key workouts that, 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 that bring a lot and then are different for each person. I'm curious if you've got something along those lines where, you know, you do that real well, you're quite well prepared for the coming winter, kind of a key workout. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know of a lot of athletes kind of have those workouts. I, do, I, I don't have one that 
specifically sticks out to me, but we do several um, roller ski time trials um, at Craftsbury. And I know that usually my time goes down in the fall versus the summer, which always feels good. Um, we do, you know, specific intervals like 12 by one minute L5 or, you know, six by four minute L4. Um, but there, yeah, it's funny. I don't have one workout. It's generally, I just trust Peppa's training so much that I know after the first year on the GRP, like I know I'm going to be fit in the fall, but it, it comes from the training cycle that we do. And I guess it, I guess it comes down to like hard uphill roller ski, uh, workouts. And generally if I feel like really quite fit on those hard uphill roller ski workouts, I know it's going to be a good winter. For sure. That's, that's a very common one, of course, but yeah. I can tell you looking in the, uh, into the, um, what's it called? The ball that you look into the future. The eight ball or something. No. Yeah. Okay. Eight ball, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, look yeah. at eight ball. I can tell you as you continue to age mm-hmm. and train less and work more, you right. are going to have a magic ball work a magic yeah, ball yeah. Ball. <laughs> I will. Uphill, uphill roller skiing intervals. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But as an elite athlete, that's, you know, you gotta have more balance and, and yeah. all variety, but as a, mm-hmm. as a master blaster, yeah, that's the, that's the go-to workout. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if you do well on those, you, you can be feel pretty good about your fitness and preparation. Right. Okay. So Ben, um, you're, you always, as an elite athlete, you've been extremely strong. I think, especially once you got to the green team, mm-hmm. the green racing project, extremely strong. I've seen you ski very, very, in a very powerful, strong manner you're solid as a rock, but I've also seen you do some strength exercises that are really impressive. So I want to ask you about strength training. In my mind, strength training has, is probably the one aspect of ski training that has changed the most over the last 20 years mm-hmm. and can, in, continues to change. I've seen you do some amazing things. Can you give me some specific thoughts on strength training and make some recommendations? Absolutely. Yeah, I, um, I've always been interested in strength. Um, just like being a strong athlete, it helps like prevent injuries. Um, just makes you feel more powerful. You can ski efficiently with strength. Um, when I got to the green team, Peppa's technique that we learn is more strength based than just like a light endurance base. So obviously you need incredible endurance to be a cross country skier, but the specific motions we do are very strength based. Um, which I find works for me and my body quite well. And so I added a lot more strength when I started on the green racing project. And then me with my uh, teammate who was on the biathlon team, Mike Gibson, he, he was also very interested in strength and we learned a lot. I did a lot of research on uh, fundamental strength movements, like your back squat, deadlifting, like very simple yet fundamental full body movements, I think is what made me such a strong athlete. I don't do a ton of ski specific strength. I actually do a bunch of like full body um, strength exercises that work kind of everything. Um, and I, I built my foundation on the back squat personally. I've had weaker legs. I've always been top heavy. I've been dominant with my upper body, always rely on double pulling. Um, and I think that's from years of kind of constant leg injuries, knee injuries, hip injuries. Um, and I've always kind of like used my arms more than my legs. Um, but I knew I, that I needed to change after Sun Valley. So I, I put a lot of time into building leg strength. Um, I also think bike racing helps with that, but that's not quite the same. 
Um, so I, I kind of built my foundation on back squat and deadlift and then single leg squat and single leg deadlift, <clears throat> like single leg exercises to supplement. And within a year, I think I've, it just made massive improvements. Um, and also with like a proper squat, you need incredible core strength. You don't have to do tons of supplemental core to get a really good core workout if you're doing all these movements properly. Um, and then as gears, we add, you know, a bunch of pull-ups, bunch of dips to get the, the muscles we need. And then obviously core because skiers can't really do enough core. So um, that's kind of what I built my strength on is like these fundamental movements, deadlifting, squat, bench press, overhead press, and then pull-ups and stuff. And just staying consistent and like doing it year after year and kind of building the weight up, building the, the reps up. And we, we do um, kind of cycle through the strength. We do like general strength, which is like, you know, 10 reps. Then we go to uh, sub max, which is like four to six reps and then uh, plyometric and, and then kind of the more plyometric strength in the winter to stay like light and quick. But um, yeah, I think strength training for me completely changed how I ski. Um, my technique is based on strength. Um, and yeah, I think it's interesting though. I have noticed that in the past two years, I've noticed that skiers seem to be getting leaner for the, especially for the male skiers. Like you see these top Norwegians and Swedes, they're very yeah. lean and they're looking not like cyclists, but they seem to be looking more like cyclists than they were five, six years ago. Um, and I, it's, it comes with part of the sport of being an endurance athlete. If we move our bodies uphill, we're going to need, it's all about weight, weight ratio, weight efficiency ratio. I think I'm personally about 10 pounds too heavy to race well in the world cup. I can race well in the U S um, with my weight, but I think that if I were to race like full-time world cup, I'd have to lose about 10 pounds to be, to be effective. And I think that the training of strength like skiers have been really strong the last, I don't know, 15, 10 years, like a lot of strength. And now it's going to be like very efficient strength and more plyometric from what I've seen. Um, some of the top skiers do it's like, and like very, very much core, like deep core, like the, the TA transverse abdominal muscles. And also you kind of the connection from like lats to your knees, like all those core muscles, but also like plyometric jumps. I think they do. Um, I don't know like specifically, but I do think that a lot of the top skiers do lots of weighted plyometric jumping to add like these springy, strong, yet very efficient muscles. So you can be powerful over an extended period of time. So I don't know if I were to continue full-time racing, I would probably move a little bit away from heavy squatting and deadlifting and more towards like weighted like jumps. Um, but I also just really like I like weightlifting personally. I, I probably am a little too heavy, but I enjoy it. And I think it makes me feel confident. So that's kind of my, my view on that. I completely agree with your assessment of what a lot of top World Cup skiers are doing in what direction strength seems mm -hmm. to be heading in. I completely mm -hmm. agree with that. Yeah. And it is interesting if you look at a lot of the top sprinters in this day and age, yeah. how, how not, they're not just lean. Of course, all the skiers are yeah. lean. You're lean yeah. as heck. And you're talking yeah. about losing 10 pounds. They're, they're slightly built. They're super strong, but yeah. they're slightly built. They're wiry. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's a, a far cry from how it was a few years ago. Like mm -hmm. Matthias Fredrickson comes to mind, for example. I mean, yeah. you know, there were some linebackers on this 
line yeah. up for sprints. And yeah. those, those days have changed. I mean, there's some big people out there still, but but generally speaking, to be at the tip, in the, the absolute winning mm-hmm. end of the race, you have to be super, not well, I guess light is the right. Yeah, I mean, efficient, strong yeah. and light. Absolutely. Yeah. So what... What common mistakes do you see in strength training or what opportunities that do you see that are not taken advantage of? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to start this off by saying I'm no expert and I'm not trying to coach anybody. But thank you. But I do think, um, I, I guess like looking younger, I never lifted weights until I went to college. So I, I think I missed a lot of years of getting that base strength in. And I think that if kids, um, start strength training early, like fundamental movements. Like I was saying, like squat, deadlift, overhead press, bench press, like pretty very simple movements, but they require a lot of coordination and technique. Like I think you need to research technique so much. I mean, people care only about the numbers they put up and it's, especially if you're a high school or college kid, especially male, like it's going to be much worse. The ego is going to get in the way you want to, you know, look impressive or whatever, but it's all about just proper technique because like you can lift more weight, but you're not doing it right. And then you're firing all the wrong muscles and your brain's trying to train different muscles to work when they shouldn't. It's all about targeting the muscles you want in the way you want them and, and to not worry about weight. And I think that that's probably a a mistake that not, I mean, it's not only for skiers, it's probably for anyone in a gym. Like it's hard, it's hard to do when you got to lift lighter when you want to lift well. So for sure. What about Olympic movements? Um, I mean, I haven't done any like clean and jerking or snatching. I don't have quite the flexibility or the, the training to do that. Um, I really wanted to, but I just never had the opportunity to fit it into my strength program. I didn't have quite the time or, I mean, I honestly don't have the flexibility to do some of those Olympic movements. Um, but I think that's interesting. It adds explosiveness to the fundamental movements, which I think could be really good for skiers. Yeah. I think that that could be good. It seems like Basic power is very important, of course. Mm-hmm. But then on top of that, the speed of movement, you know, explosive yes. movements, velocity of movement mm-hmm. is very important. And, you know, so if you're not going to do Olympic movements, something like you alluded to using a certain amount of weight, not, not a ton of weight, I don't think, and then doing mm-hmm. plyometrics, for example, is, yep. is an example of speed of movement and explosiveness. Yeah, and we do, you know, like balls, like med balls, throwdowns, those are explosive, right. like you could put a weight vest on and jump up a hill or something. I mean, stuff like that where you add a little resistance, but you try to be very explosive without injuring yourself, I think is really good. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's switch gears. You know, I'm the, I've been the Toco glove designer forever. Um, mm-hmm. What is your favorite Toco glove model and why? Uh, I've got to go classic. It's uh, I use it for almost every, for almost, yeah, almost everything. Um, I've actually been leaning more towards the Thermo Plus recently and the Thermo Race, but I don't know if when I'm getting older, like I feel like my hands are getting colder, but um, it's, it's before that it's always been the classic. And the reason for that is I like to keep my straps really tight. So I don't like too much material. Um, some people, you know, have different preferences on that, but I keep my straps like just tight enough so it doesn't pinch the skin between my forefinger and thumb. So the classic is like enough of that um, material on the palm where it's thicker than the Profi because the Profi is great, but I don't know. I kind of like a little bit more cushion for my hand. And then it's like that windproof backing. So you don't have to worry about the wind chill and like not a lot of insulation for the back part of the strap. 
and uh, the size nine fits my hand really well. So there's no, none like the gaps and stuff in between the fingers. Um, I, it just feels good. They're also super durable. I still have pro, uh, I mean, classics from like my first year on Toko. So. <laughs> uh, the reason I laughed when you said classic, which is great. The classics are fantastic love, but yeah. the reason I laughed is you were the genesis, the reason for the thermal race. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you said, Hey, I want something with insulation in the back of the hand, nothing yeah. on the palm, no insulation whatsoever, et cetera, et cetera. And I came yeah. out and it's been a very successful model. And yeah. I guess it's my favorite overall glove bar none, you know, hands down. Um, so it's a little ironic that you said classic. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. I mean, classic's a fantastic glove. Yeah, they're both so good. So, um, what is something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out? Yeah, I mean, I know that the people, like my close teammates and friends, definitely know this, but a lot of people don't. Like, I really like unhealthy food. <laughs> I mean, I will do. I'll do intervals to get like donuts or a Domino's pizza. Like, absolutely, and that's sometimes that's does is that's what motivates me to finish a hard workout i'm like i'm definitely going to get a pizza after this so that's, that's something something about me <laughs> here's something that might resonate with you back back a long time ago when i was training hard um i used to try to add variety to my training so i would add a i did a two hour freestyle swim once a week Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> to motivate myself i would buy before I went, I would buy two pumpkin pies. Oh, nice. When I was done with my two hour freestyle swim, well, I wasn't a swimmer, so it was, you know, blood and guts. Yeah. Really I, and I, would, I would sit down and eat two pumpkin pies. That's awesome. <laughs> and it yeah. was awesome. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. And if I didn't eat those pies, I would have gotten too lean. I mean, that was a right. freaking brutal workout. Yeah. Um, something I didn't give you a heads up about, so I'm not sure you're going to have an answer for me, but what is something that you know now that you wish you had known when you were 18? Um, yeah, that's a good question. The first thing I can think of, not more wish I knew or wish I learned is, does that work? Like what I learned, I guess. That's what, basically, what do you do yeah. now that would have been really useful to you to have known when you were 18? I wish I was able to let go of bad races or like to know how much that would affect me. Hmm. Um, people that know me well, like I beat myself up relentlessly after a bad race and it's partly my ego and just like, I just get so frustrated and I kind of let it, like I let the race result um, kind of create my own identity, which is really unhealthy and really not like not productive at all. So I wish I, I learned and, and practiced letting go of bad races and not letting it kind of like, I did like create my identity. Um, that's what I wish. Absolutely. It's I've wasted hundreds of hours just like being disappointed about bad races and it doesn't make you faster it makes you slower actually it also uses a tremendous amount of energy doesn't it it's exhausting yeah yeah that's a super important point i'm glad i asked that question because i don't think it would have come out otherwise and um a lot of people listen to these podcasts so i'm hoping that that some people will listen to this and then make an effort a conscious effort to fix that because that's a big problem for a lot of i mean i think if I would tell any young skier anything and be like, learn how to let go of bad races, it, it is, it is awful. And I mean, a big reason of why I wanted to ski race is obviously I want to win. Like I want to, I want to do well. And my ego just got really strong when I was in my, in my teens and twenties, probably like without me even knowing it, as you, as you get better at racing and get better results, your ego kind of gets involved with the results. And so, and then sometimes you can't really separate it. And so when you have a bad race, you feel like you just, 
I don't know, you just feel really bad about yourself. And yeah. if I could just separate that result, then I think that I would have been faster and, and probably could have raced longer even. I think there's two aspects of this too. There's, there's one, which is the bad race, which ticks right. off, you know, you know, pride yeah. or disappointment, frustration. But there's the other aspect that I think it scares a person to have a bad race because it means you're headed in the wrong trajectory. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's an important skill to be able to learn from a bad race, take mm -hmm. what you need to take from it so you adjust your trajectory without dwelling on it and, and using up all this negative energy and you know, thought yep. process. And that's a, a really important skill to learn. Yeah, and it is a skill for sure because like I've been I've researched how to do this. I've meditated on this. I've journaled about it. Like I've done work on this, and it it is a skill because there are times where I just cannot get myself out of that bad space. And I think some athletes do this really well, and those athletes can race a lot longer. I yeah, think. I agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and if you don't do that to yourself, you have more energy, more positive energy, which I think mm -hmm. truly think I truly think that. Uh, contributes to good races. Absolutely. Positive energy. Yeah, 100%. And, and, and health. You know, yeah. I think a bad race, you dwell on it, can lead to sickness very easily. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more to this. That's a serious problem for a lot of people. I'm really glad you mentioned that. Yeah. And, and then, you know, how to kind of resolve it. Mm -hmm. Okay, last question, I think. Do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? Yeah, I have, I have a few, but the, the number one, one is uh, never give up. It sounds cliche, but uh, I tell myself that during any super hard interval session, really hard race that I don't want to finish. If I'm having a really bad day, I'm just like, I'm not giving up. Like, I don't care if I come in dead last by 20 minutes, I'm going to finish unless obviously I have really bad vertigo or, or an injury, but like there's, I don't know. I just, my grandfather told me, told me that um, a few months before he passed away, like after the dinner that we had with them. And he's like, Benny, like never give up. You got to keep going. And so that's something that, yeah, that I'll, uh, I'll always think about. That also really made it hard for me to, to end my career because I, I didn't know like, when is it okay to leave skiing and, and versus the never give up. Because like, I mean, if I never give up, I'm going to ski forever, but you can't do that. So that's a, that's a different kind of conversation, but well, um, and then actually, I don't think yeah. really, because I, I believe you are going to be a ski racer and a skier for life. Yeah. So, you know, I don't think you're That's giving true. up. You're just shifting gears. But I mean, look at you. You're ready to go to the World Cup right now. Yeah. <laughs> and you're going to yeah. be in 10 years. You're going to be looking for a, a fight, quote unquote, you know, a ski. Yeah. Fight. I mean, that's, you know, you're, you're not giving up by any means. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, there's a bunch of mantras like that. I mean, staying positive, you know, follow positive self-talk like is a real thing. If if you had a microphone inside my head, it'd be like, come on, Ben, you can do this. Like for a lot of my best races, it's just like being like, I got this, like I can do it. And it sounds funny, but it, it works so well. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know, stuff like that. All right. Yeah. Well, um, you still happy about uh, being a new member of the Toka Tech team? We'll see what this winter brings, but yeah, I'm really excited. I, I, I admit I don't know a lot about waxing, and it's something that, as a pro skier, we can be very grateful to have wax techs, but we also don't really learn. So I'm actually really excited to learn more about waxing and be part of the Toko Tech team. So this winter we're not going to be able to do our West Yellowstone get together. 
right. Maybe you'll be able to make it out. I don't know what your time off situation looks like and such, but mm -hmm. hopefully we'll do it next year in West Yellowstone. And okay. hopefully you'll cool. be there and we'll do some schooling and yeah. and go for some skis and um, see if we can make some improvements there. But if nothing else, I'm honored to have you on the Toka Tech team. And thank you. I, because of that, I know we're going to be communicating a little more than, other, than we would be otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've we've developed a friendship over the past few years just from seeing each other at events here and mm -hmm. there. I've, I've really enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, you're definitely my kind of guy and you resonate with me and you know so I've enjoyed that too so I'm glad that we'll have an opportunity to continue to be friends as well as uh, kind of help each other in the future so yeah thank you Ian yeah thank you very much for doing this and uh, I wish you well and um, in your in your career and your personal life and and I'm, I'm I'm excited to see what you do on skis this winter although the opportunities we'll see what what comes our way yeah of course thank you so much okay well thank you yeah